Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Rumoured as a top contender as the inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald's most enigmatic of characters, Jay Gatsby, Joseph Bowne Elwell was among other things a property developer, racehorse owner, author, socialite, broker, tutor, and last but certainly not least, thoroughly famous card player. Winning sums that totaled in the tens of thousands on a nightly basis, he built both wealth and a social circle that placed him firmly in the upper echelons of New York City's elite. That was until one morning in June 1920, when his maid found him shot in the forehead, dressed in his pyjamas, sitting in an armchair of the reception room of his Manhattan residence. Perplexing for the police was not only the fact that he was a man with no known but potentially thousands of enemies, but also that his house had been locked shut. The windows were barred, and no gun had ever been found at the crime scene. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories. I hope you're all doing very well. I'm Ben, and it's good to be back. It's been a little while since I did the last episode. Um, If you're on Patreon or you follow the socials, you might know um, I took a, a small break, uh, just uh, I think I skipped one episode, but that accounts to about four weeks. Basically, I had some trouble um, speaking, uh, so that's obviously not very good for a, a podcast uh, host. So yes, um, but everything's better now. Everything's fine. Everything's fixed. So everything from now on will be carrying along just as normal. So yeah, I hope you've all been doing very well. I don't have a lot to talk about before despite the break, um, except from to say that we'll be doing a Halloween live stream this year and that'll be over on YouTube. Normally I kind of talk about this on the socials and stuff, but just to drop it in, you probably want to keep an eye out because this live stream, we're going to chop and change it up a bit, keep it a little bit fresh. So there's definitely some audience participation going to be going on. So yeah, keep an eye out for that on the social media or if you're on our discord um yeah jump on the discord and 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 all the information will be on there coming up within the next week or so i'd guess some somewhere along there if you're a patreon member probably a little bit sooner uh if you are looking for the discord or anything like that darkissues.com anyway let's crack on with this this is the mysterious murder of joseph bowne elwell New York in the early 20th century was a bustling city of over four and a half million people. A centre for trade, its busy streets hummed with traffic throughout all hours of the day. In the morning, the throng of the fish markets spilled from the dock area out into an urban landscape that reeked of the stench of decaying human waste, filling the gutters and creeping out from overfilled tenements, 
lit up at night by the bright electrical signs of Broadway. Whilst riots erupted and the working classes held strike actions in the streets, the upper classes dined on lobster in rooftop restaurants and drank whiskey in smoke-filled rooms. Populated by some of the richest, most well-known people in America, these were venues that catered to the darlings of the smart sets, the powerful, the successful and the fashionable. Like butterflies in a spring meadow, they flitted from one glamorous den to the next, living a life of social frivolity that befitted their class and status. One of the more popular fashions within the after-dinner clubs and drawing rooms were card games like Bridge and the popular variant Whist, which, in the early 20th century, had skyrocketed as the number one game that everyone who was anyone should be playing. Arriving in New York in the early 1890s, it was quick to take the spot as the most fashionable of fashionable after-dinner games to be played amongst the middle and upper classes, and entire tea parties were held in order just to play the game. Guides on how to host such an event, referred to as bridge teas, including all the appropriate etiquette, were written and published in enormously popular magazines like Harper's Bazaar. Social circles swarmed to play, and it quickly became a matter of social standing to be familiar with the rules, variations and tables of New York, London, and for the most privileged, the private games that went on nightly behind closed doors in smoke-filled rooms between the most wealthy of the it-crowd socialites of the day. In 1920 New York, one of the biggest names in the game was Joseph Bowne Elwell, the man who, quite literally, wrote the book on the game. Fantastically wealthy, Elwell had created a sprawling world of glitz and glam, running in the smartest of smart sets purely off the back of playing cards. Despite huge sums of money coming his way through gambling, a pastime that was certainly not viewed by all with charitable eyes, he had transcended the image of shady card shark by carefully manoeuvring through the right circles. His perfectly looked after dark features dapper fashion and gentlemanly manner projected such a refined image to the world that it was not uncommon to hear of people losing to him and then turning around and describing the fleecing of having been an absolute pleasure just to see him play up close. Until June of 1920, he was famous the world over for his skill in cards and the people he dined with, but then, on June the 11th, as the sun rose on another stifling hot New York City summer's day, with just one bullet, his entire legacy was altered forever. Joseph Bowne Elwell, or Joe to his friends, was born in Crawford, Union County, New Jersey, on Sunday the 23rd of February, 1873. In the years prior, Crawford had seen a period of growth as those with modest means found themselves able to migrate out from Brooklyn to the leafier outskirts. His father, Joseph Sanford Elwell, had married Jane Anetta in 1870 and worked as a travelling salesman before giving up the road life to settle down working first in Brooklyn and then later at home as a broker and then a clerk, where he earned a modest living. Enough at least to be able to support their four children, Joseph Bowne, Walter, Louise and Grace, though somewhat precariously. When Joseph entered the Phillips Academy, a private school in Andover, north of Boston, his tuition was paid for not by his father, but a well-off relative, at the cost of over $120 per year. 
Joseph's time at Phillips Academy was reasonably solitary. He joined no clubs or school teams, and there is little record of his time there in terms of academic achievements. He stayed at the school until he was 16 years old, graduating as a middle in 1888, but not returning as a senior in the following year. By the time he left school, Joseph's father was working as a fish merchant in New York with his brother Walter. Not keen on entering this trade, Joseph instead drifted between a number of jobs, first working in insurance before trying his hand as a clerk, and then finally he followed in his father's earlier footsteps as a door-to-door salesman. Religious through and through, he attended church with a relative diligence at the Tompkins Avenue Congregational Church every Sunday, and whenever he could, he showed up to prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. It was at this point in his life that Joseph discovered cards and also his natural ability to command them. He began playing whist and soon approached the reverend of the church to suggest starting a young men's club. The reverend agreed and left it to Joseph to arrange and organise the meetings, which he did, naturally including games of whist as a key component. It wasn't long before he began earning a reputation and Joseph became aware that he was, perhaps, a truly gifted player. As word spread of the new kid on the block, he found his circle of friends growing, centering on games of cards, and soon he was being invited to tables in the neighbourhood, not simply to make up the numbers. Joseph took cards like a duck to water, and within months, his entire social life became consumed by the games. So much of his free time was taken up by the games that he quickly found himself moving away from the church and the young men's club that he had set up in order to spend more time enjoying this new hobby. He joined the local Republican club, despite his lack of politics, simply to begin playing in their organised bridge whist games, a variation on whist that allowed for gambling, an element that added a new injection of thrill, and he soon found himself throwing down stakes which were, at his early point in his career, relatively high. It turned out to be opportune timing, as he played more and more at the club and refined his game just in time for the game's rise in popularity to soar. For Joseph, who was quickly becoming a veteran around the local tables, it was an opportunity to sweep up the enthusiastic influx of new players, keen to throw away their money in order to spend an evening playing the fashionable game. With money now involved, and the game rising in popularity to the point where Anyone who was anyone would simply have to know how to play if they wished to socialise effectively. Elwell took on a new role as a tutor. His reputation had spread wide enough that he was a keen player with a natural ability and his refined appearance and time spent with the smart set made him easily approachable, especially to the young women married to wealthy husbands who wished to learn how to play and found the excitement of being taught by a dapper gent of his skill level a thoroughly enjoyable prospect. For Joseph, it was a double boon. He could earn a pretty penny through both tutoring and playing, finding both enormously helpful to his reputation. This in turn only greased the social wheels for him further, affording him opportunities to meet more and more well-to-do types, being invited to larger games and finding fancier clientele. It was a self-feeding cycle and one that Elwell embraced. It wasn't long before he found himself rubbing shoulders with Helen Darby, who he met at various social gatherings off the back of his card playing, and the pair eventually started dating. 
At the turn of the century, the Darby family were practically American royalty, and they counted a Roosevelt in their ranks after Helen's cousin married Ethel Roosevelt Darby, the youngest daughter of Teddy, the 26th President of the United States. A recent divorcee, Helen was nothing short of a catch for Elwell. That the pair even met is a testament to both the fantastic popularity of card games in the early 20th century and Joseph's reputation and skill as a player. By the spring of 1900, the two were married and living in a rented apartment in Lower Manhattan, and with Helen acting as his social secretary, Joseph's stock as a tutor in Bridgewist continued to rise. Joseph and Helen's early married life together was one of a high-class glamour and social utopia. Joseph taught Helen how to play cards, and the pair lived a life that existed around the tables of New York and Newport, rubbing shoulders with America's richest and most powerful elite, and Joseph fleecing many of them at cards, where he continued to impress and open new doors for tutoring. With Helen's connections, his clientele now boasted names as lofty as the Vanderbilts, whose shipping and railroad empire had elevated them to the richest family in America. When the pair stayed for a period in Newport, Joseph taught William Kisson Vanderbilt and his two sons, Harold and William, at cards daily for extortionate fees, always negotiated by Helen. The young card player from New York had, by this point, become a celebrity in his own right, and his reputation, along with Helen's skill in marketing and knack of being friends with the right people, allowed the pair to command almost any price for tuition. His services were so in demand that eventually Helen herself began teaching the clients of lower social standing, with people happy to pay just for her association to Joseph. The Derby Elwells stayed in Newport, and as the weather turned, they returned to Manhattan, though now they rented a new apartment in the Park Avenue area. Joseph continued to play in and around various members' clubs and private homes. Though some clubs had strict caps on how much players could gamble, the figures banded about around the tables were often just a fraction of the stakes that were later settled up once the game was over and the players were out of earshot of the proprietors. These strict rules that were so common led Joseph to join a small group that started up their own club, which they named the Studio Club, where members were free to gamble with much more freedom and much higher caps. The membership was small, but consisted solely of the super-rich, capitalists, realtors, brokers, tycoons, and of course, Joseph. In the studio club, Joseph was free to gamble to his heart's content, making at times up to $30,000 a night. Of course, he suffered losses too, but the ratios were always in his favour. Much to Helen's chagrin, Elwell began playing other card games, often involving much more elements of chance, such as Baccarat and Faro. It was not only the danger of Joseph taking heavy losses in these games that she disliked, but also the fact that Joseph was, for all his gentlemanly appearance and charm, a gambler at the very core, and Helen held concerns that he may become seen as little more than a card shark. Always keen to shape and direct this image of Joseph's, she had carefully paved the way for him to socialise in the correct circles and with the very best people, and now she wasn't prepared to lose their card empire. To this end, Helen arranged with Scribner Publishing for Joseph to write a book, which was eventually published in 1902 entitled 
Elwell on Bridge. Whilst attributed to Joseph, it had in fact been authored completely by Helen, with Joseph chipping in little more than some light editing. His publishing was a success, though it was somewhat slow out of the gates, but led on to a whole slew of books, the first of which followed in 1904 titled Bridge Tournament Hands, a book of articles that Joseph, or more likely Helen, had authored for the New York Evening Telegram. Financially speaking, the books were a success for the publisher, and for Joseph, perhaps more importantly for Helen, they further cemented his reputation and offered him up as a man of substance. Joseph and Helen's son, Richard Darby Elwell, was born on the 23rd of August, 1904, and with his birth, Helen took her first steps towards the back seat of the car business. She was naturally maternal, and when they moved to a larger apartment on Park Avenue to accommodate the baby, they hired their house staff, minus a nanny, on her own insistence. The shortfall from losing Helen's wages as a tutor was by now more than made up for by Joseph's more extracurricular activities. Outside of card games, he had been playing the stock market since early 1902, as well as branching out into other areas, such as the buying and selling of speculative commodities, and eventually, real estate. The new child had a further effect on the relationship between Helen and Joseph, however. With Helen spending so much time at home, Joseph began travelling much more by himself, Gone were the couple's trips to Europe together, on cruises and gallivants to warmer, more profitable climes, migrating with the moneyed classes. Instead, Joseph played alone, often staying out for days at a time, or arriving home at the crack of dawn after a night's heavy gambling. The family took a single trip together to England in 1909, which saw Joseph tutoring cards to King Edward VII. After their return, the steady decline of their relationship set in. Helen began playing cards alone, which Joseph found difficult to deal with, often becoming enraged with jealousy towards her partners. One night in 1911, he called Charles Worley, Helen's partner in Bridge at the time, which resulted in Charles hanging up on Joseph, then penning him a letter, suggesting that in future, any communication between the two should be through a third party, or by letter only. He signed off the letter after the curt conclusion. Vituperation or abuse over the phone is simply the act of a coward. By 1914, Joseph began preparing for legal separation from his estranged wife, and it was followed through in 1916 when Joseph moved to Stone's Throw south of the family apartment. During the settlement, Helen's lawyers estimated his worth to be in the region of $600,000 with the ability to earn between $1,000 and $10,000 per night. His tuition gigs were estimated to bring in about $18,000 per year, on top of royalties from book sales, which were estimated at $7,000 per year. During the settlement, she made a demand of $5,000 per year from Joseph, but ended up settling on $2,400, paid in monthly instalments with a $600 per year education fund for their son Richard. In reality, it is likely that Elwell was worth considerably more, as his recent turnover in real estate had been especially lucrative. He had, for some time, been developing property in Palm Beach, which he had flipped for a considerable profit, all kept secret from Helen. With his separation officially settled, 
There was little need for Joseph to uphold any more pretense about his own infidelities, and he quickly gained the reputation as something of a ladies' man. His good friend and colleague at the studio club, Lawrence Green, said of him, Elwell was not a man who seemed to select any special girl. He was a man who exercised a remarkable influence over women. He was cold-blooded to an extreme, which, instead of repelling his friends of the opposite sex, seemed to attract them more. By 1917, Joseph had branched out once again, this time in racehorses, where he co-owned a stable in northern Kentucky with partner William Pendleton. As with almost all things in his life, he saw it as a further opportunity to profit from cards, and when he visited the stables on business, he would often stay at fancy hotels in Lexington and take the other visitors out to drive for the pleasure of spending the evening at the tables of one of the most famous card players around. Whilst he always lost with dignity, there was one incident in 1917 involving Russian bonds that saw Elwell rumoured to lose potentially to the tune of $125,000, and this seemed to smite somewhat more than his other losses. He had purchased the bonds as part of a speculative venture, though the chaos of the war had led them winding up to be worth little more than the paper they were written on. After the harsh loss, Elwell joined the American Protective League, a move which has since been much rumoured to have had its roots in the bonds' loss. The American Protective League was set up in 1917 and it ran until the end of the war in 1919. It was an American domestic volunteer group of private citizens that worked with federal law enforcement to shop foreign spies, anti-war activists and far-left social figureheads. In particular, the group sought to out German and Russian radicals, spies and dissidents. The group was naturally criticised for encroaching on American civil liberties and for acting as vigilantes. For Elwell, this particular element of his broadening of interests is most peculiar, but did serve to add spy-catcher to his increasingly cluttered career portfolio. How much of it had to do with his loss in Russian bonds is uncertain, but he was later spoken of as having a lingering distrust of foreign business after the event. In 1919, Joseph Elwell moved to 244 West 70th Street, a large three-storey townhouse which he rented as a stopgap residence from his friend, lawyer Bernard Sandler. It was a grand terraced affair with large front doors that led to a vestibule and inner doors. On the ground floor, there was a large reception room, lavatory, storeroom and kitchen. All the windows on the ground floor were covered in black iron grills, along with the door and basement windows. The first floor opened up to a large living room and dining room, which Elwell used as a tutoring room for his card students, with the top floor holding two bedrooms, the larger of which Elwell slept in and the smaller at the front of the house, which he kept made up for guests. Elwell did not intend to stay overly long at the address, and as such, he only made himself marginally comfortable, and though it was filled with expensive, often exotic furnishings, much of them were left lying around, perfectly uninsured, with no permanent homes. Of particular note was a selection of Ming vases, a Moreau sculpture, and a Rembrandt painting that he had bought for $17,000. This arrangement had almost led to another potentially stinging loss for Elwell when, in December of 1919, the house was broken into, only for the would-be burglars to be confronted 
was such an embarrassment of riches that they ended up stalling long enough to be captured in the act after an observant neighbour had called the police. After the attempted burglary, Joseph called in a locksmith to service all locks and window grills, replace any that were in need of replacement and change the locks on the front doors. Once carried out, the two sets of keys were divided between Joseph and his maid-of-all-work, a Swedish lady named Marie Larsson. On Wednesday the 10th of June 1920, Marie Larsson arrived at 244 West 70th at 8.30am. When she walked into the house, Joseph was already awake, sitting in the armchair in the front reception room of the ground floor in his pyjamas and silk dressing gown. Not wanting to disturb her employer any more than she need, she slipped out to the kitchen, placing the milk into a bowl of cool water to prevent it from turning on what was bound to be another stifling hot summer's day. The neighbours were having renovation work carried out and the usual bumps and bangs clattered through the wall as they had every day for the previous week as the carpenters got on with their morning's work. Joseph took his breakfast and shortly after left to go to the Long Island races where he had a lunch appointment with his stables partner, William Pendleton. Afterwards, he returned home for a short while before changing into his evening wear to ready himself for a dinner appointment at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. That night, he was to meet with his good friend, Walter Lewison, and his wife, along with his sister, Viola Krauss. Viola had been married to Victor von Schlegel, a business magnate dealing in rubber manufacturing, though the pair were in the midst of working through a divorce and throughout, Viola and Joseph had been very close. The precise nature of just how close the two had been in the past was plainly insinuated, but never confirmed. As it happened, Viola's divorce had been made official that very morning. The party were also joined by Octavio Figueroa, a South American newspaper publisher. As the group stepped out onto the rooftop restaurant, a second, rather more awkward coincidence arose as Victor von Schlegel was also out to dinner at the Ritz-Carlton with his new lady friend, a young, attractive woman who would soon become known only as the Woman in Black. A rather difficult night ensued, and what should have been a happy affair for Viola turned sour, and it became apparent that she had some frustrations with Joseph. A somewhat tense dinner and dance was had by all the members, before Joseph suggested that they alight to a different locale and arrange for tickets to the Midnight Frolics at the New Amsterdam Theatre. A two-storey venue with a larger main stage on the first floor and a smaller rooftop stage named the Aerial Gardens where midnight shows took on a more experimental edge. After the show, the floor would open up to a late-night dance. Despite the new scenery, the spat between Viola and Joseph seemed to continue until the night was ended and the Lewisons, Viola and Figueroa, called it a night and jumped in a cab to take them home at around 2am. Joseph took his own cab, stopping to pick up a paper, and arrived at home at around 2.15am. The next morning, Thursday the 11th of June, Marie Larson arrived at Joseph's home slightly later for work. Running late as she was, she met with the lock front door of 244 West 70th at 8.35am. Using her keys, she unlocked the front door, stepped into the vestibule, noticing that, strangely given the locked door, the milkman had already dropped in the milk and cream. Collecting it up, 
She unlocked the inner door and stepped inside the house, closing both behind her. As was her usual routine, she took the milk and cream to the kitchen before walking back down to the hall towards the reception room to clean before Joseph was awake. Though, as she approached, she noticed the smell of cigarette smoke in the air and thought it likely that Joseph was already awake once again. Whether it had been the sound of the workers arriving at 8am each morning or the relentless heat of the summer, she had noted that Joseph had not been sleeping as well as usual of late. He'd also been smoking significantly more than usual too. When she reached the reception room, she saw through the open door the reflection of a man in the mirror above the mantelpiece and immediately she apologised for her intrusion. When no reply came, however, she cracked the door open further and stepped into the room. Joseph sat in the armchair by the rear wall to the left of the door. Just like the day before, he was dressed in his pyjamas. One of the very first stranger things for her to notice was that the day's mail was strewn across the floor, all around Joseph's bare feet. Looking up to his face, she saw with horror Joseph's closed eyes quivering. In the centre of his forehead, there was a dark red-black hole that tore up through his skull, causing blood to have spattered onto the wall behind the chair, dotted around a large, cavernous hole in the wall. In a sudden rush of panic, Marie dashed outside into the street and bumping into the milkman who was in the middle of the road by his float, she yelled at him to get an officer quick. Sensing the urgency of the situation, he went off to find an officer, arriving back at the house shortly after with Superintendent Fisher, who telephoned the police for further help. Meanwhile, Marie continued her search and entered a local drugstore where she found an officer herself, whom she told to call an ambulance. The officer, Harry Singer, perhaps confused by the sudden alarm, instead decided to follow Marie back to Joseph's house, where he stepped inside, took one look at the ailing man, and then went back outside, once again calling upon the milkman to help him find some help for Joseph, who he explained couldn't live very long. The milkman found and alerted a nearby chauffeur who was sitting in the driver's seat of his car and convinced him to pull up to the house in order to drive Joseph to the hospital, whilst Officer Singer called the local station from the phone in the reception room of Joseph's house. Once he had explained the situation to Captain Walsh, he was told to stay put and watch over the scene until he could arrive. 244 West 70th Street was now the scene of a flurry of activity. Detectives arrived, one after the other, as did the ambulance, finally, collecting up Joseph and taking him unconscious to Flower Hospital at 8.55am. As soon as they arrived, however, the surgeon realised that Joseph was in much more dire need, and so they turned away and went to the much larger Bellevue Hospital, arriving at 9.19am. Joseph was carried into the hospital and treated for shock, but with the wound to his head as it was, it was clear he would not survive for long. Whilst it's not clear on the precise time, for reasons completely unknown, it was recorded as simply around 10am that Joseph finally succumbed to his injuries. Meanwhile, sensing the scrutiny the case was likely to fall under, Dr Norris, the chief medical examiner for New York City, arrived at 244 West 70th just minutes after Joseph had been taken away by the ambulance. Following on to the hospital, he conducted the autopsy, noting the cause of death as 
a bullet wound of skull and brain. The last word, homicidal, was underlined in pen. Stomach empty except for a small quantity of brownish-black fluid. The mucosa is well-preserved. A large wound of exit is situated in the scalp, one inch to the left of the sagittal or the middle of the skull and one to one and a half inches above the external occipital protuberance. The wound is shaped like a cross with two bars of nearly equal length. In the sagittal or median line of forehead, commencing at a point 1.8 inches above the bridge of the nose, there is a bullet wound of entrance of the skin, measuring in an anterior-posterior direction 0.5 inches and crosswise 0.4 inches. The general shape of the wound is quadrilateral, with radiations or lacerations of the skin at the four corners of the wound and a fifth laceration in the middle of the left border of the wound. Dr Norris also noted that there were around 30 small black spots dotted around the wound, though the edges showed no signs of powder burn or marks that were visible. The exit wound lie one to one and a half inches above the entry wound, suggesting the bullet was fired at an upward trajectory. Back at 244 West 70th Street, the throng of activity continued. Detectives crawled over the scene and found several strange points of interest. The very first, and perhaps most obvious, was the fact that Joseph had been found dressed in his pyjamas, barefoot, and more strangely, not wearing either his toupee or false teeth. That he even wore a toupee would have been news to many of even his close friends, and very few would have found Joseph comfortable enough to casually read his mail in such a state of nakedness before them. His feet had been noted as being clean, so no one believed that he had walked far or spent much time barefoot. Thirty inches away from them, lying on the ground amongst the three unopened letters, the detectives found the shell casing from a single 45 calibre bullet. The fact that the shell casing was on the ground made it highly likely that the gun that had fired it had been an automatic, something which could not be confirmed, given that no gun could be found not only in the reception room, but nowhere in the house at all. This wouldn't have been so unnerving if it weren't for the fact that upon questioning the maid, the police had learned that the house had been thoroughly locked up upon her arrival. Two cigarette butts were found in the reception room, one in the ashtray next to the armchair, Elwell's standard, hand-rolled brand, which he had custom blended in a local tobacconist, and a second butt, which had been rested on the rosewood mantelpiece and left to burn out from its own volition. Upon closer inspection, the police found that the butt was still moist from the smoker's mouth. Asking around in the street and with the neighbours, it appeared that absolutely no one had heard a gunshot that morning, leaving the police with something of a mystery. Joseph Elwell was most certainly dead, but the gun that had killed him had vanished. The murderer was nothing but a phantom, apparently able to exit through locked doors. The postman was tracked down and found still out on his route, and when questioned, he confirmed with the police that he had arrived at 2.44 that morning, between 7.20 and 7.25am, and at that time, he had found the front door unlocked. He had pulled the majar, thrown the mail into the vestibule, and then closed the doors and rang the bell to alert Joseph to the delivery. Piecing the scene together, detectives figured that this had woken Joseph, who had then got up and sat down to read his mail. At some point over the next hour, a visitor had arrived 
and Dr. Norris guessed, based on the period of survival, that Joseph had been shot toward the end of the hour, between 8.20 and 8.25am, just 10 minutes before Mrs. Larson's arrival. It was all a very confusing picture for police. They found an address book in Joseph's belongings, along with over $400 in cash, instantly ruling out robbery as a motive. Using the book, the police called Joseph's father to break the sad news of his son's murder. They then went on to look through the book, which was rammed full of his friends, acquaintances and clientele, many of which were women, and with his reputation already being that of a womanizer, the press went to town calling it a love list maintained by Joseph to keep track of his numerous affairs. Despite Dr. Norris confirming in his autopsy report that the cause of death was, in his opinion, homicidal, the press were also quick off the mark to suggest that it had been a suicide. Norris released a statement of correction immediately, apparently furious at the suggestion. The upward trajectory of the bullet causing it to exit an inch or so higher than its entrance might be taken as an indication that Elwell had his head prone slightly back and was looking past the muzzle of the weapon into the eyes of the slighter. The circumstances, in my opinion, prove that Elwell was not taken by surprise. At least, that the presence of a man or woman in the house was not a surprise to him. He might have been shot without knowing he was about to be shot. On the other hand, he might have been sitting there trying to induce the murderer or not to shoot, but there are no indications one way or the other on that point. The police followed this statement up with one of their own, confirming Dr Norris's conclusions and stating their own agreement. The police might have been confident that the case was not one of suicide, however, they were sure of very little else. The facts as far as they could see were thus. That Elwell had been found, shot in the centre of the forehead, with all doors and windows barred and locked shut. Despite the close scene, no gun had been found anywhere in the house. Joseph had sat in a chair, apparently quite at ease with his killer, as he was dressed in his pyjamas without his toupee or false teeth, a peculiar situation for a man who placed such high value on image. It was an image that he had carefully honed, crafted and exposed to the public, and now, after his death, the press was certainly picking up on it. Amongst the many epithets used to describe Joseph in early reports, he ranged from perfectly respectable gentlemen about town to downright scandalous womanizer and heartbreaking wretch. Helen, his ex-wife, called him a piker and a chicken chaser, while some he would have counted amongst his best friends painted the picture of a straight-up misogynist. The New York Times wrote a piece on him which was illuminating not only to the opinion of Joseph in the press, but also of the romance of the mystery that they were narrating in their reports. New York is full of types and characters, but they all fall into several general classifications. The rounder type, the bachelor type and the gambler type are well known. They have common characteristics. The society butterfly type is equally well known and is easily classifiable. Elwell was all of these, plus something more. It is just that plus that puts him as a type in a class of his own. It is just that plus that forbids designating him as a rounder, a gambler or a society butterfly. He had character, he was intelligent, he was suave, he knew the meaning of savoir-faire. Everyone knew him, he apparently had no enemies. His characteristics on the surface were as clean-cut as a cameo. And yet, 
This man, who everyone called Joe, lived an odd and mysterious life. Beyond the racetrack, the stock market, the whist table, the cabaret, the touring car, there was another Elwell. An Elwell who deliberately left his wife and son to shift for themselves and chose to live alone in a big house. An Elwell who bobbed up unexpectedly anywhere and disappeared like a jack-in-the-box. An Elwell within an Elwell, so to speak. A secret, a remote, even a misanthropic Elwell. In Palm Beach, in New York, at Belmont Park, whoever met the real Joseph Bowne Elwell. The veil that surrounds his murder may never be pierced until the police have got to the track of that other Joseph Bowne Elwell, for whom his friends knew nothing. That other mysterious Elwell, who was cloaked by the everyday Elwell, as completely as Dr. Jackal hid Mr. Hyde. It was extravagant and over the top for sure, but the writer had hit on something the police were coming to be all too aware of. Joseph was a man with no enemies at all, and a thousand enemies at once. A gentleman, a celebrity, and a social darling, but at the same time, a man whom potentially hundreds of slighted husbands could have been holding a grudge against, or, as his business affairs unraveled before them, potentially as many violent business dealings. After all, the racetrack, the gambling halls and the clubs were all avenues for potential corruption, and Joseph was involved with so many. With no clues from the scene and a locked room mystery firmly building before their eyes, where on earth was the investigation even supposed to start? One of the first places that they could start was with the party that Joseph had been dining with from the night before and they were able to do so much sooner than they might have expected. Joseph had had an appointment to go motoring with the Lewisons this lunchtime, and upon his no-show, they stopped into the house, now calling with police. Informal statements were taken from each of them, alibis were confirmed, and little was learned. One of the only facts that may have been any help was that Viola had called him earlier that morning, after he had arrived home at 2.30am. One of the biggest, and really only potential clues, was their possession of the bullet casing. The police sent it off to be examined by William Jones, a former NYPD captain who analysed it and confirmed that it could only possibly have been fired by three weapons. A Colt's revolver, a Smith & Wesson revolver, or an automatic Colt's pistol, typical of US Army personnel, given that it was a standard issue. The ejected cartridge almost certainly meant that the gun had been fired was the common auto pistol and the police immediately began cruising Joseph's contacts for ex-military types. Sadly, it was a false lead from the start as, upon further investigation, the shell itself was found to be missing the armoury manufacturer code on the base which it would have had if it had been military. It had been a complicated and confusing morning in a case that was only about to get more so. The press, in conjunction with the splinter detective bureaus of the homicide divisions and the regular police division, along with the mix of district attorney and his two assistants, all made for a veritable soup of misinformation, fiction, false leads and backtracking exploding into the investigation. Some of the reports in the papers got so wild that eventually Edward Swan, the district attorney, called for a press meeting where he impressed upon them the importance of his own meetings, which he confirmed would be the only source of information going forward. A statement 
they would have been very welcome to all if it hadn't been ignored by everyone else involved, including both of his assistants, who continued with their own, often conflicting statements the very next day. Any real suspects in the investigations were few and far between. After hearing of the rooftop soiree on the night before, on the roof of the Ritz-Carlton, police tracked down Victor von Schlegel and got their hopes up when they found him not to be at home and having been missing since 10am on the morning of the murder. He had apparently last been seen haphazardly fleeing for Atlantic City. They pieced together the motive of a jealous ex-husband murdering Joseph, who happily danced with Viola, the ex-wife, on the day of their divorce, and they sprung into action. In their excitement, however, no one thought to check in with his office, which, had they have done so, they would have found out that he had in fact gone to Atlantic City for a convention of engineers and car builders, and that he had had the trip planned since long before Elwell's death. Upon his return to New York, police picked him up and called back the surveillance that they had placed both his home and workplace under. Victor was then questioned heavily, whereby he explained the situation and police checked in with his office, confirming that all that he had said in regards to the convention and his planned trip had been completely true. They asked him if he had ever owned a gun, to which he replied that yes, he had a 38 caliber pistol in his house. As it happened, the police had already searched the property and found that not only was the gun no match for the murder weapon in terms of caliber, but it was also covered in dust, where it had been left unused for years. With the imagined story of murder and escape dissolving before their eyes, Victor was allowed to leave, but asked to stay within Manhattan for the foreseeable future in case he was needed for further questioning, a privilege that they would make the most of, pulling him in for various reasons on five subsequent occasions, despite having little else to go on. With no other leads, the police began focusing on the women in the case. This, they reasoned, was surely a lucrative area. Day by day, Joseph's image of a womanising philanderer grew exponentially, with stories of bribery from heartbroken women, jealous husbands and love triangles turned violent, filling the pages of the press. Many of the women in Joseph's life were, of course, high society, and so newspaper articles would offer up tantalising pseudonyms for many of them in order to protect their identities, and within a matter of days, Joseph was known to have been involved with a woman in black, grey and white, along with another mud-gutter blonde. Behind the scenes, however, police were one by one trawling through the list of Joseph's contacts and, just as monotonously, ruling them all out of contention as suspects. For a short while, hopes raised once again when detectives finally thought to check on the phone records of the house and found that Joseph had reportedly made three calls on the morning of the murder, one at 4.39am to William Pendleton, one at 6.09am to his father, and one mysterious call at 6.16am to a number in Garden City, Long Island, to an unknown man named S.A. Varley. Upon further investigation, all three men denied the calls, and Varling had been as perplexed by the records as the police, stating that he had not even heard of Joseph until that he had read of his murder in the papers. When the detectives double-checked with the telephone exchange, it turned out that user error in looking up the records had led everyone completely down the garden path, and none of the calls had been made after all. Despite this fact being addressed publicly, 
The press continued with the phone calls anyway, declaring them to be calls made from a desperate Elwell trying to secure cash to pay an attempt at bribery. By now, even confirmed facts were being distorted at all corners, with Elwell's journey home from the Ritz-Carlton a prime example. Though police had taken a statement from a cab driver that all but confirmed that he had taken a cab straight home, stories flooded the press that he had been seen in a dance club, a whist hall, at the Baltimore Hotel, in a gambling den, having a fight in the street, in two completely different cafes with various completely different women, and in a cab on Times Square with two unknown women. The stories eventually grew so out of hand that the police actually issued a press release condemning the state of the investigation in the public eye, but not until after a visit from William Pendleton's lawyer, frustrated by his client's treatment in the press as a suspect. There is no suspect in the Elwell murder case. The statement in the newspapers is a grave injustice referred to by them against whom we have no legal evidence that would justify an arrest or even the detention of any person as a material witness. Such statements may make interest in newspaper copy, but they are contrary to the facts and misleading to the public. It was not a comfortable position for the police and detectives involved in the investigation, who slowly but surely found themselves walking down a dead-end path, with no clues, leads or facts with which to pull themselves back to a positive position. On the 28th of June, Edward Swan, the district attorney, spoke to the press, admitting that after 18 days of investigation, they had nothing. No clues, no suspects, and honestly speaking, not even any real reason, aside from the missing gun from the scene of the crime, to fully rule out suicide. When the press asked why they thought Elwell might take his own life, he replied simply, I don't know, he was broke, wasn't he? Though he then conceded that he had no proof that Joseph was broke either, concluding the press conference by simply stating, we can't find any sufficient evidence for someone else to have killed him. So it was, amidst all the confusion, backtracking statements and conflicting facts of the case, that the investigation gradually petered out, turning cold and languishing in a stagnant perpetuity where it has remained for a hundred years. The murder or suicide of Joseph Bowen Elwell has remained as it ever was thoroughly in the dark a locked-room mystery with no solution. Modern theories draw for the most part from the theories banded about during the contemporary investigation. One of the most common theories of the time, and still today, is the angle of Joseph Elwell, the womanizer, who was murdered either by a slighted husband or boyfriend or a victim of his relentless heartbreaking ways. In 1987, British crime writer Jonathan Goodman published his book on the case, titled The Slaying of Joseph Bowne Elwell, in which he posits his own theory along these lines. Goodman suggests that Joseph was killed by his friend, Walter Lewison. Once again, it's a theory that revolved around a woman, in this case, Leonara Hughes. Leonara was a famous cabaret and ballroom dancer who had dabbled in acting. She had, for a time, been involved in some capacity with Joseph, and Goodman suggests that Walter whose mental health deteriorated rapidly in the years following his death, seeing him eventually hospitalised and making endless one-way telephone calls to the young Starla, declaring his undying love for her, either shot Elwell himself or paid off an assassin to do the job for him in a fit of jealous envy. 
Goodman's theory, however, relies on a great deal of conjecture and postulation involving many people who are long since dead and holds little in the way of hard evidence. Towards the end of the investigation, and despite all medical advice, even police failed to rule out suicide as a cause of death, and one theory they floated throughout the investigation was that Mrs. Larson had perhaps cleaned more of the crime scene than she let on. This suspicion of the maid fell largely on her due to the fact that she had hidden a pink negligee in Joseph's closet belonging to Viola Krauss in order to protect her name from reaching the press. This, the detectives suggested, was enough to cast doubt upon Mrs. Larson. If she could be dishonest about the nightgown, then surely she could be dishonest about her involvement with the scene and her discovery of Joseph. What if she had hidden or discarded the gun in order to protect Joseph from the stigma that befell being a victim of suicide? One offshoot of this theory was that Viola herself killed Joseph. She had, after all, apparently had a spat with Joseph on the last night that he was alive whilst they dined and danced in the Ritz-Carlton. Had Joseph spurned her advances now that she was a free woman in the eyes of the law, with her divorce finalised? Had she expected more from Joseph, and had her disappointment in his willing to commit pushed her to murder? This theory more or less concludes with the speculation that she had then shown up at Joseph's and shot him, only for the maid to cover up after her, though the reasons that the maid would do this are never suggested. Pivotal in this theory is that Joseph was found without his toupee or denture in place, a situation very few, but perhaps Viola, would have been privy to. The lead investigator in the case, Arthur Carey, had his own, rather less glamorous theory. He suggested that a thief had followed the mailman on the morning of the shooting and seeing the front door of Joseph's house being open, he had slid inside once the mail had been delivered. He then went on to shoot Elwell and then inexplicably for a man planning to rob, decided instead to run without taking any of the possessions left dotted around the house. His only explanation being that perhaps the coming of the maid, Mrs. Larson, was enough to shake a potential robber and force him to alight while she potted around putting the milk into water in the kitchen. In the end, the facts of the case are few and far between. That Joseph was found in a locked house, barefoot, dressed in his pyjamas, without two pair and dentures and with a large hole in his head from a gunshot is about all we have. The likelihood of it being a suicide seems slim if one is to go along with the medical evidence. But then we are left with the difficult and confusing situation of needing to find a motive, a method and a murderer, all of which could be everyone and no one, everything and nothing at all. After 100 years, the case of Joseph Bowen Elwell's mysterious death is as cold as it ever was, perhaps just as the murderer himself had done on the morning of June the 11th, 1920, the case slipped into historical obscurity, where it now rests, unlikely to ever be unwound. That was the case of Joseph Bowne Elwell. It's a really fascinating mystery, and it feels a bit old school, actually. It feels a bit like old fashion dark histories in a way in that you know I used to do a bit more of these kind of stories of kind of locked room mysteries and that sort of stuff so yeah when I was doing it it kind of felt a little bit old school somehow but anyway there's a lot to talk about in this and there is quite a bit that I didn't include necessarily for various reasons but 
we'll come to that in a minute and we'll talk about it a little bit more after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com And you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So, yeah, where to start? There's a lot in this case, which is sort of, as always, with the internet and, you know, blogs and things, there's a lot in this case that's like totally either blown out of proportion or disproved, but it doesn't matter. It still gets repeated over and over again. And and one of the most interesting, I think, in terms of the case, and uh, it's kind of, rubbished really early on with the book that was written that I mentioned 
Goodman's The Slaying of Joseph Brown Elwell, which is a great book, by the way, and is, is definitely worth reading because so much of this case I've kind of glossed over in this. I don't, I don't want to sort of say glossed over and been lazy or anything, but it, I was left in a difficult situation where this is an hour-long podcast and so much of the theories and such and, and police investigation was looking into like all of his various contacts and, and friends and all the places that they hang out in. And, and what you end up with is this like cacophony of names and places, which gets quite complicated. It's, it's without reading it sort of in a book or having a lot of hours to explain it sort of slowly one by one. I feared that this episode would turn into this just mess of like names and places, basically. So I tried to kind of present the case, but breeze over some of the issues. Uh, the next place I would go if I was you, if you're interested in in sort of following up on this and, and reading more about it, is definitely Goodman's book. There's a lot I don't agree with him, but he gets some things really on point. And one of them, getting back to the point anyway, um, is is he rubbishes the cigarette butt on the mantelpiece which I found really interesting because everything that I'd read and heard about about this case always talked about two cigarette butts and how it's a really interesting kind of I suppose that's probably why it's persevered is because it is such a tantalizing part of the mystery that, that the police found this like damp cigarette butt that was just resting on the mantelpiece and and it conjures up these images of Joseph and, and, and the murderer smoking a cigarette and chatting together, probably on quite friendly terms, perhaps being a little threatening, and then him being shot and then escaping just, you know, seconds before Mrs. Larson came, the maid. Because obviously, if the cigarette was still wet, it must have been very, very, very recently. So, you know, the killer just, just about sneaking away in time. So probably because of these reasons, it's kind of persevered. But Goodman suggests that actually, and I, and I really, I mean, it's, it's only guesswork, but I really see his point and I, and I think it's a really good suggestion. But he suggests that the cigarette butt was probably left by one of the police. Um, and, and his reasoning behind that is basically when the police all arrived, it was like carnage. There was like police from all over the place just coming in. The chances are that one of them put the cigarette down let it burn out, and another policeman then came along and found it and assumed that it had been left there by, like, a, the murderer. Now, there's not a lot to go on there except from the fact that it's true that it was a busy area, you know, it was a busy crime scene. But what I really thought was, like, nailed on, and, and I thought Goodman was really good at sort of pointing out, was the fact that it was still damp. Now... By the time the police and that got there and found that, that, that was going on like over an hour after he would have left, like close to an hour and a half. Now, if that was still damp after an hour and a half, that, that was a drivelly murderer. Goodman sort of goes on to kind of mock the, like he, he, he sort of explains this in a very mocking way, how if, if, if uh, the murderer had really left that much saliva on his cigarette that it was still there an hour and a half later... Why did he not left like a snail trail behind him as he'd run away? Which I kind of agree. Like, I think that's dead true. Um, so I think he really nails that. And I think it really, but, but say besides, 
it does get repeated a lot, which is fine because it, it definitely was found there. And Goodman's theory is only a theory, but it it's never often brought up. And I think that's a shame because I think it's a really important thing that rubbishes that. And it, and it opens up, I think, more theories that perhaps he wasn't murdered at all. And that's kind of where I'm at. I sort of... Well, it's so difficult because, like I say, there's so many names and places and people that he was involved in. He had his fingers in so many different pies and a lot of those pies were not necessarily very uh, savoury. You know, there, there could very easily have been violence involved, especially if he perhaps owed money or was indebted to somebody somehow. So there's all of these reasons that he could have been the target for violence or a murder but it's all just guesswork because as it you know it seems that nobody hated him and he had no enemies so we're kind of left with that and that is very tantalizing and that that's very much you know i i I kind of want to go that route and say that he was full-on assassinated by someone probably through some sort of deals one of his deals that he had done I don't really go along with the idea that he was murdered by a slighted husband. I think largely a lot of his mis- uh, a lot of his womanizing was played up by the media. I do think probably he had a womanizing streak to him, but I, d- I, d- I do think it was heavily played up by the media at the time. Heavily. I mean, you can see that. You read the articles in the papers; they love it. They absolutely pile it on. So yeah, I, I think that's slightly overplayed and I, I, I can't get with that one. The only other theory I think holds any water is suicide. So the reasons that suicide is basically ruled out is that there was no gun found. So obviously someone had to have carried the gun away after they'd shot him. So that's fair enough. The second reason is that it was like 30 inches away and at an upwards angle, or at least the exit wound was higher than the entry wound, so his head was possibly tilted back looking up at the killer as he was sitting down. But I would suggest that if you... I mean, this is not something I've given too much thought to, but if you were to shoot yourself in the head, you see it on the films and stuff when people do it. I know this is not the best way to come up with theories but whenever you see in films they put the gun right against their head but what's to say that he didn't hold it at arm's length and just pull the trigger I mean you're still I mean that's I suppose that's a bit scarier because you're looking straight down the barrel whilst you're about to shoot yourself but the, the, the second half of this theory I think is not altogether unlikely and that is that I think the police were perhaps right about Marie Larson I think they're a bit harsh on her for saying that, you know, she, she hit a negligee, therefore she could do it all. But I do think she perhaps cleaned up the crime scene a little bit more. I think that's a valid theory that perhaps he shot himself and then she found him with the gun on the floor and she just picked it up and put it away because as we have today... We have all, you know, there's always been a heavy stigma on suicide. It's bad now. The stigma on suicide is, you know, it's terrible now. It's a, it's a horrible thing that 
you know, it's still sort of viewed in those ways. And and you tend to assume that views, like societal views and things like that get, get better over time. So, you know, if we go back to the 20s, was it even worse? Was the opinions even stronger against suicide? You'd probably believe they, they were. And actually, even if this was today, you could still imagine someone trying to cover up a suicide of someone well off and with a good image because they wouldn't want that to sully their good image in a way. And I, and I can see that, you know, like a maid who had been with him for a long time felt a certain duty towards him and didn't want him to see his name kind of get pulled through the mud as such. And, and, and I, definitely, I, I definitely think that that's a motive and I definitely think it's a solid theory. And, and to be honest, I think it's the most likely theory because all the other theories of it being a murderer, I just don't, have, I don't understand how that could have happened. There was witnesses to just about everything that went on that morning. You know, there was the, the milkman, the postman, the chauffeur in the car down the road, the workman next door, all of these people. And, and this is just like, they're just the four people that were like right next to the house. There's, they, they, they questioned other people as well. And not a single person saw anyone leave that house. You know, this is before we're even talking about locked doors and stuff like that, which then obviously brings further complications. So I think it's a solid theory that he perhaps just killed himself and then Marie Larson covered up for him. But who knows? Like I say, he had his fingers in a lot of unsavoury pies. Uh, So, you know, it could have been any number of things. It is a really interesting story, though. And like I say, if you want to follow it up, I definitely recommend Goodman's book. Let's say there are elements of it. His main theory, I don't really agree with. But luckily, he doesn't let it cloud the book too much. He puts his theory at the end of the book. So you can read through the book and get the story and then you can ignore his theory at the end. You can pretty much do that. The one thing I would say is, he holds a few things back until he gets to his theory, I feel like, for dramatic effect, which is a bit of a shame. But generally speaking, it's a really good book that goes over a lot of detail. Um, so definitely you should check that out if, if you fancy it. It goes a lot more into the names and the places of his friends, colleagues and associations. It does obviously make it a damn sight more complicated and the spider's web of sort of names and faces gets very messy but because as you can imagine you know a guy with this much socializing going on he had a a big net you know a big social net so yeah it does get slightly messy it's a bit difficult to follow at times but definitely an interesting book i definitely recommend it so anyway that's pretty much that um i hope you enjoyed this week's episode next episode is obviously getting well, it's October, isn't it? So it's getting very close to Halloween. So the next episode, I mean, you know, it's, it's, we're going supernatural, obviously, for Halloween. So that'd be good. So look forward to that. Um, and say so we are doing uh, a live stream as well, closer to Halloween. I'd, I'll go a bit more into that next episode. Probably also go into it, say, on Discord and social media. But definitely come along to the live stream. That's going to be really fun. That'll be on YouTube. So you really want to just follow social media or Discord. You can find all of that stuff on um, darkhistories.com along with ways that you can support the podcast if you'd like to do so. 
Um, and, you know, get in touch with me as well if you'd like to do that, which you can totally do. Contact at darkhistories.com. Uh, that's my email. Otherwise, um, PM or DM me through um, like Instagram, Facebook, those sorts of things. I, I always welcome talking to people, so feel free. If you have any theories on this case, if you think I'm talking rubbish, uh, if you want to, you know, make any suggestions, uh, help yourself um, get in touch. Say I, I love hearing from everyone. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening. I'll see you all again in a couple of weeks. Uh, like I say, the schedule is, is now fully back to normal. So, yeah, I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. And we'll be doing, yes, definitely a more Halloween vibe episode. So, yeah, until then, have a great couple of weeks. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll see you soon. Sleep tight.